If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word, we turn this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll commence our reading once again at verse 29. That's John chapter 1 and verse 29. Our text this morning is just verses 35 to 39. But I just remind you before we read that here you and I encounter the preaching of that wilderness and preparatory voice. He summons us to behold the Lamb. And beloved, that summons is just as vital today as it was in the first century. The command that we read this morning is just, is just as enforcing as it was when first it was spoken. John chapter 1, and starting at the 29th verse. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bear record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, I bear record, that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day after, John stood, and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? He said unto him, Rabbi, which is to be interpreted, say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. As far as the reading of God's holy word, indeed may he richly bless us as we sit under it together. Before we come to our text this morning, I want to ask a question. Uh, perhaps it's a strange question, given that we've been in the Gospels now for not only months, but years. I want to ask, how do you read these texts? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see, I, I think if somebody on the street were to stop most of us and, and to ask us that question, how should I think about the Gospels, I'm sure that we would respond in perhaps one of two ways. We would say, well, you're not supposed to read the Gospels just as mere history, because these, these are, of course, historical accounts, but, but this is about the Lord of glory. This is about the incarnate Son of God. And, of course, this is God's record of his own Son. The content and the form or the origin are absolutely distinct from anything you'll ever read outside of the Scriptures. And beloved, in one sense, that's of course an appropriate response. 
But there is another way that you and I are supposed to distinguish these records from the likes of a biography of Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Constantine, Alexander the Great. It is true that these texts stand distinct from those biographies because this is the inspired word of God about the Lord of glory. But beloved, on another level, you and I should also remember that the subject, the Lord Jesus Christ, is distinct because the one of whom we read, we may now have personal communion with. You and I can read biographies about Martin Luther, John Calvin, and any number of great men of the past, godly men even. But only when we come to the Gospels can we say, I read of the one with whom I can have communion now. Beloved, when we take up the Gospel accounts, it's so very crucial that we have the living Christ, the personal Christ in front of us. And the Gospel accounts themselves labor to do that for us. I want you to see, as we come to John 1, and specifically to the verses we take up this morning, how that's done for us. You remember, as we've been thinking about the verses preceding, that that John, the inspired evangelist, has come to us, and he's he's called us to remember that, that he is writing about the incarnate Word, who has come into history, who has come and made his abode among men, And before he was manifest, God had sent John as God's solemn witness. 2,000 years ago, this John came and he preached as that wilderness preparatory voice. And beloved, we've been considering how John has shown us that testimony. As you go from verses 15 right down to verse 34, the prevailing emphasis is on John's record his witness or his confession that he makes of Christ. And what John the evangelist is telling us is that the Baptist has done his work. He has borne witness to the Lord Jesus. And so, beloved, we we come at verse 35 to a transition. The preceding verses were focused on the record that John gave to Christ. But verses 35 to the end, John moves our attention elsewhere. If I could take you back just for a moment to the first 14 verses of this gospel. It's in verse 6 that we find that John has borne record. And so in these preceding verses, John shows us how that was done. But when you come to verse 14, you remember that John the evangelist tells us something else. He says here, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what verses 35 and following do for us is they show us how verse 14 was accomplished. How the Lamb was beheld. We'll see this, God willing, not only today, but right through our time in this first chapter. That the emphasis moves from the record, the witness or the testimony of Christ, to seeing Christ. That transition takes place really in our text this morning. And so what do we have? As you look at verse 35, we're told here that John, once again, on another day, the day following that record that we took up last Lord's Day, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. 
And after he has made this second exhortation, and if you're counting the days, this is the third day, this is the third sequential day from the, from the moment that we found the deputation from Jerusalem. So on the third day, he makes the exact same exhortation that he made the day preceding. But with this distinction. Verse, 30, verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. We don't read of anyone. None in the preceding days have really listened to the exhortation until now. And as you read through this text, you'll notice that there's something perhaps of an unusual exchange that follows. As these disciples leave the preaching of John and they go to Christ, Christ turns to them. And he says, what seek ye? That's perhaps something that we can understand fair enough. But then you come to the return. They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? Now, beloved, as we look at this text, it does seem a bit strange if you think about it for just more than a minute. It does seem a bit strange that they're asking just for the lodging of Christ. But as you situate this text in its broader historical context, and I'm not even meaning just Palestine, but if you think about it in the first century and in the years preceding, this exchange, though may seem strange to us at first, is actually quite quite common. It's actually something that's rather formulaic even. I want you to notice that first of all they begin by saying by calling him a rabbi. As John says here, master. That's our first clue that something profound is being done here. Note, beloved, that these were the disciples of John. And they turn to Christ and they call him Rabbi. And then note the question, where dwellest thou? You see, if you hold those two elements together, what you find here is actually a very formal request. This is a request for them to be made disciples of Christ. You, you remember, uh, perhaps in school, how even philosophers in Greece would have students under their carriage. And, and, and what that meant was that those students would go and really shadow their master wherever they went. The philosophers were, were often called peripatetics. They would walk around. Socrates, of course, was the foremost of these peripatetic philosophers. And his students, or disciples, followed their master. That is, they became part of his household. They became his shadow. Beloved, when you look at this text, you're to remember those kinds of things. In fact, you're to remember, of course, even what's to come. These ones are really saying, I'm entrusting myself to you as master, and I would be with you wherever you are. Wherever Christ dwells, this question is saying they would be there also. It is a request for enrollment in Christ's peripatetic ministry. And then when you come to verse 39, and Christ says, come and see, beloved, that is also a formulaic reply. 
This is Christ accepting their request. They will now become part of his household. It's interesting that that's actually how Christ himself describes the relationship between him and his disciples. We'll see this in a moment, but when you turn to Matthew chapter, when you turn to Matthew chapter 10, Christ refers to his disciples as his household. And of course, by experience, you recognize that where Christ was through his earthly ministry, there the disciples were also. This is the foundation of that. Now, beloved, what I I remind you of, though, as we look at this text, is that we are thinking about discipleship here in a very general sense. We're thinking here about, if you like, Christian discipleship. We're not thinking here about apostleship. And just briefly allow me to distinguish those things for you. You remember that when Christ is going to call the twelve and eventually bring to himself the seventy, there's an event that's preceding. You find it in Luke 6. He says, He went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And, it will, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and all of them, and out of all of them, he chose the twelve, whom he named apostles. This is not apostleship that we're talking about this morning. This is general Christian discipleship, where you have men convinced under the preaching of John that they need to be Christ's shadow, need to be enrolled under his tutelage. And beloved, that was not only a first century reality. You remember that whenever Christ commissions his disciples in Matthew 28, he says this, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. If you have a text that has a marginal note there, that marginal note will very likely read, that the text literally is, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, beloved, even after his ascension, Christ was interested in making disciples just as disciples were made in the first century. The manner would change, but in substance, discipleship would remain. And so for us, as we look at this text, how do we apply it to ourselves? What is the general truth that you and I are to glean from this? Well, beloved, if we remember what has preceded these verses, the text teaches us clearly that souls must go from preaching to Christ. Souls must go from preaching to Christ. And I want us to consider that under three headings. I want us to consider the instrument that's in view I want us to see the inquiry that is there prompted. And finally, I want us to see the invitation that is tendered. That is the instrument, the inquiry, and the invitation. And so take first of all the instrument. Beloved, as you look at again, verse 37, you have these words, the two disciples heard him speak, that is John, and they followed Jesus. Now, that prompts for us a question. What did, he, what did they hear? What did they hear? And obviously, the immediate answer to that is found in verse verse 36. It is that repeated exhortation to behold the Lamb. But beloved, you remember that the Gospel writer tells us that these were the disciples of John. They were, for the time, shadows to his ministry. We don't know for how long, but, but they sat under John's ministry day and daily. They were with him wherever he was. That's what it meant to be a disciple of anyone philosopher, or prophet. And so what did these men hear? 
Just allow me to remind you what John's gospel itself holds out to us in answer to that question. Verse 16, they heard John say that out of Christ, out of his fullness, have all we received, and grace for grace. If you turn to verse 32, they heard that John saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon Christ. Verse 34, John says, I saw record that this is the Son of God. Now friend, what does all of that mean? What you and I are to remember is is in part what we contemplated last Lord's Day morning. Yes, John is testifying of his own experience, but this is not to be regarded merely as a personal testimony. This is God's solemn witness bearer. This is a prophetic utterance. And so when the disciples were told here, heard John, they heard God's testimony of Christ through John's preaching. That's what you and I are supposed to understand of this text, that that they went from the, the divine testimony of Christ, given to them, tendered to them through John, and they went to Christ personally. But it does also prompt another question. The command was to behold the Lamb. And the most natural question you and I can ask is, well, then what did they see? If we can answer the question, what did they hear? What did they see? Verse 29 tells us they saw the sin bearer. And beloved, in verse 11, well, they found really a fulfillment of the substance of verse 11. that reads, he came unto his own and his own received him not. You remember, beloved, when you, turn, when you turn to the deputations, verses 19 to 28 of John 1, you and I are supposed to read that as a fulfillment of that 11th verse of the first chapter. That already men had rejected Christ. That's what they saw. The Lamb who was now the sin-bearer, now one, as we've, as we've said before, who's taken upon himself the form of a servant, servant and was made in the likeness of man, the one who had no form nor comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what they saw. Beloved, why did they follow him? If that is what they saw with their own eyes, what induced them to leave the ministry of John that was very, very, very popular, blessed by God evidently in his generation? What would induce them to leave that vibrant ministry and follow a man at that time who had no following? Beloved, the answer again is given to us in verse 37. Two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. It was the proclamation of Christ that drove them to follow him. And so, Christian, it's the preaching of Christ that we even see in this text that is the primary means to draw men to him. I mean, other means are possible, but this is the one that God has chosen. And even in the first century, this is the means that God had chosen to draw men to himself. Beloved, if if that was the primary means, even when Christ walked the earth in the flesh, how much more must that also be the primary means in the 21st century 
When Christ is bodily ascended and we await his second advent. No, beloved, in the first century and in the 21st century alike, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's what this text holds out to us, powerfully. This is a moment where you and I are being, being instructed, not only in history, but in the way in which men will ordinarily come to Christ. Preaching is then that chosen means, blessed by God. And friend, we, we could exhaust our time this morning thinking about this, but allow me just to remind you of a text I know I often draw your attention to, but it's that text that you have in 1 Corinthians 14. You remember that Paul there is addressing the congregation in Corinth, and, and he's dealing with those who are heavily emphasizing the extraordinary gifts that the church then enjoyed. And, and you remember what Paul does. When he comes to that 14th chapter of this epistle, he reminds them that tongues are not to be preferred over preaching because here's the, here's the effect of preaching. When the unbeliever hears the powerful proclamation of God's word, it is that which makes them fall down on his face, worship God, and say that God is in you of a truth. That's a staggering thing, beloved. Do you realize what Paul is saying? For all of the extraordinary things that you and I come to acquaintance with through the book of Acts and through the epistles, he says nothing speaks to the world about the glory of God inhabiting his people and drawing souls to himself than the preaching of God's word. Beloved, I don't, I don't need to go into great lengths to refute Pentecostalism. Paul is the one who reminds them. It is the preaching of God's word that you and I do expect most the conversion of souls and the exaltation of God's name. Having said that, beloved, this text also reminds us something that we can't forget. Preaching is the instrumental cause, not the efficient cause of drawing souls to Christ. It is the instrument. It is not the efficient agent. And what do I mean by that? Well, friend, just look at our text for a moment. If you're tallying the days uh, in conjunction with what you have in the synoptic gospels as well with what you have in our text, you come to what at least must be a span of 43 days of preaching. That is, from the moment of Christ's public exhibition at his baptism to this moment. 43 days, at least. And at the end of that 43 days, Christ has only two who have followed him. There was no defect in John's preaching. There was no defect in the public proclamation of Christ. John was clear. And John was forceful in his exhortations. And friend, that reminds us that even... Even the, boy, even the voice of a seraph, even the greatest preacher, the one most blessed by God, well, friend, he himself by his own power can draw none to Christ. Preaching is the instrument that God uses, but preaching guarantees the salvation of none. It is the instrument, not the agent. 
And beloved, as the scriptures unfold this idea for us, it does so in various ways. Uh, remember how the apostles described their own ministries. To some, they were the savor of death unto death, and to other, the savor of life unto life. You remember that in the Old Testament, the, the prophet Isaiah was called to preach, and here was his commission. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. That's a radical commission especially from one who's been called something like the fifth evangelist, the, the prophet of the Old Testament who wrote most wonderfully, most deeply about Christ. And what God has promised him is that under his preaching, though it's the preaching of God, though it's even the inspired preaching, nevertheless it will lead to the hardening of souls, not to its softening. But friend, I'd also remind you too that the text of Scripture bears out that this is no failure in preaching. The instrument isn't broken. The reminder is is that God is the one who wields it at his pleasure. As Christ prays in John 17, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. That's a promise, beloved. It is a request, of course, as as Christ sends these petitions to the Father and gives us a picture of of what Christ even now is praying for. But see that. It is through their word or their proclamation of Christ that men would believe. It is only an instrument. It is God who wields it. And so, friend, this text reminds us that the preaching of God's word, it is both a hardening and a softening ordinance. You see, the sun, the same sun that melts ice, hardens clay. And preaching is no different. Beloved, it it is very often the case that men and women will sit under the same sermon. Some will go hardened. Others will be softened. And beloved, that really has nothing to do with the preacher. And this text then reminds us of that. How many disciples did John have? How many gathered at the banks of the Jordan? The whole world, says Josephus, seemed to follow John's ministry, but only two, two, went to hear him. And beloved, it does raise the question, doesn't it? How many of John's congregation would in just three years' time cry, crucify him, crucify him. Blood be on us and on our children. We have no king but Caesar. So, beloved, this raises something of a question for ourselves. If all of this is true about the proclamation of God's word, if everything that I've raised from the text of Scripture to you about this ordinance is true, how are we holding up? Beloved, are we changed under the preached word of God? Can we say that we can detect softening? Or do we see hardening? That's the instrument. But what of the inquiry? Of course, I'd remind you just of the text. The disciples turn to Christ after Christ asks them, what are they seeking? He, they respond, Rabbi, where dwellest thou? Now, I've already highlighted for you the formal elements 
that this was a formal request to be enrolled as Christ's disciples. But allow me just for a moment to step back and also contemplate with you what, what also was underneath those formal ideas. What do I mean? Well, friend, I want you to remember that, that Christ in his earthly ministry demonstrated that he had no time for a kind of customary flattery. If custom dictated flattery, Christ rebuked it. Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It was custom, it was a kind of polite formality to call him Lord, but Christ will have none of that baseless formality. And here you find no rebuke from Christ. When they call him rabbi, he doesn't, he doesn't turn around and rebuke them for flattery. There was something to this, beloved, that we're supposed to see. That when they called him master, they were indeed from the heart, to some extent, submitting to him. And beloved, you, you remember how Christ himself highlights this. Even the calling of them rabbi, calling of him rabbi, had incredible significance. Christ puts it this way. He says, be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. And so when they turn and say rabbi, they are saying you and you only are my master. It's a staggering thing. Staggering, beloved, if you contemplate that these are first the disciples of John. These are men who sat under, as Christ reminds us, that one among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater, that this is Elias which was for to come. They're departing his ministry and saying of Christ, you and you only are rabbi. This is a submission to him. It's even perhaps more striking, beloved, that Christ at this point has not preached a single sermon in their hearing. Christ has performed not a single miracle in their presence. And yet they've said, you only are master. There's something else in this text too. Beloved, when they are saying that they would see Christ's dwelling, yes, of course, this is, again, formula. A, a formal request to be a disciple. But underlying that is the idea that they are indeed asking to be enrolled also in Christ's household, that they would be with him. In perhaps an embryonic state, what you have in this text are the disciples saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life when they were saying, we would be with you where you are. Beloved, it's no different than what Thomas would later say. Let us go, also go that we may die with him. I will be where he is, regardless of where that may be, and regardless of what may come to me through it. And beloved, again, as we seek to apply this to ourselves, this inquiry in its substance, is actually found in every true disciple of Christ. You see, Christ puts it to us this way. He says, whoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Beloved, every Christian, in a sense, is asking this very thing. Where dwellest thou? Where might I find him? 
that I might submit to him and dwell with him. Here, beloved, you have again in substance the same thing that every disciple of Christ has, and that is the expressed desire to submit and to commune with Christ. And beloved, here you have that transition. They sat under the preaching of John, and they've moved from the preaching of Christ to the person of Christ. Beloved, that must always be it. And and here you see the disciples recognizing that much. They take the preaching of John as the means and not as the end. Beloved, the sermon is not supposed to be considered as the end in itself. The the public proclamation of the gospel, no matter how eloquent, no, no matter how savory in itself... It is to do this very thing, to to lead men and women to cry, Where dwellest thou? Where can I find him? And beloved, when the preaching of God's word is rightly understood, that is the heart cry of Christ's disciples. I don't want to hear only about him. I want him. Him. And what's so staggering, beloved, is when you look at what we read from 1 John, that's the very purpose, says John, for his writing. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Preaching itself, the word of God itself, is is to drive us as a means to an end. And that end is the person of Christ. And again, John reminds us, it is fellowship with him. So what does all of this mean? What does this mean? Beloved, if I could remind you again of what we read from Song of Solomon, it means this. The bride turns and asks Christ, Tell me, O thou who my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? You see what the church is asking there. The church is pleading, yes, she requires feeding. She she requires the shadow of protection that's afforded by the presence of the shepherd. But there's something more to this. She would be with him. And so she asks, where can I find him? Where can I be with him? Beloved, that is the proper inquiry every time you and I come under the instrument aforementioned. Every time you and I come under the public proclamation of God's word. It is a desire there to meet with Christ. You see, you find this in Psalm 42. You remember how the psalmist puts it. He says, My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. But then he asks, When shall I come and appear before God? I want you to notice what he does there. He refers to the ordinances of the gospel. When shall I come and appear before God? He's referring there to the public gathering for worship. But he says here that it's not the ordinances for the ordinances' sake that he's made so longing. He actually thirsts for the God of the ordinances. His inquiry is for God through the means of grace. 
And beloved, the analogy that I can draw here is that here you have an example of souls that don't stop at a portrait of Christ. They move to his person. Beloved, it's one thing for us to to love the pictures of our spouses or other loved ones. But that's insufficient of itself. It is their person that is to be the principal object of our affection. And beloved, you see that in this text, in that very simple inquiry. Where are you that we may be there with you? And so are we pressing for this? Are we pressing for this? To use these means to drive us to Christ? And beloved, if we'll see this in a moment, but if we knew what degrees of communion we could have with Christ through these means, surely we would pray differently. Surely we would prepare differently. Beloved, if we knew what it was to know Christ at this intimate level, I really believe we would come here different people. I say that of myself and anyone. But that brings us thirdly and finally as we close to that last element in the text. And that is the invitation. The response is quite small. There's no indication that it's even been abbreviated for us. It is simply the words of Christ, come and see. Again, I've I've already elaborated briefly on the formal elements, that this was a formal acceptance of this request. But I want you to look at this just for a moment on a deeper level. This is an invitation to lay hold of Christ. And beloved, I want you just to step back for a moment. You don't read here any despising of the small number of disciples that have come after him. Christ doesn't turn to them. He doesn't turn asking, well, where is everybody else? And perhaps even more to the point, he doesn't turn to them with rebuke, though they deserved it. Forty-three days at least, beloved, these self-same disciples sat under John's ministry twice heard the exhortation to behold the Lamb, and only now came to Christ. Beloved, delayed obedience is disobedience. We know that, and we say that to our children. Surely these men deserved rebuke. But that's not what they receive. Instead, it's invitation. And moreover, it is actually an an induction into Christ's home that they receive. It's a staggering text. When you contemplate here, even at this moment, what, what could have actually resulted, we find instead invitation. And beloved, that surely teaches us that Christ invites sinners to communion with him. I've already said to you, beloved, that in 1 John chapter 1, you have given for us really the purpose for revelation. And, and of course, beyond that, it's public proclamation. That we would have fellowship with God and with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I suppose I could say that, and I know we say that to one another frequently, that we can have communion with Christ, that we can have fellowship with him. But can, but can I ask perhaps a basic question this morning as we think about this? What does that mean? What, what does it mean to have communion with Christ? What does it mean for Christ to have disciples who abide with him today? It's all well and good to speak that, but, but what does it really mean? It's interesting, but in John 14, you have something of an answer to that question. Judas saith unto Christ, that is not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? You see what Judas is asking there. He's asking a very basic question. You have told us that that you are going away. That's quite clear to us now. But, But how will you, as you've promised, come to us as comforter, manifest yourself to us, is this one of those instances where are you're just saying you'll live on in our hearts? As so often you hear people say these days about the deceased. Will you appear to us like a phantom? An idea or a ghost? I want you to notice Christ's reply. Jesus answered and said unto and love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Beloved, if that means anything less than real or personal communion analogous to what the disciples enjoyed, there is no comfort in this reply. If Christ is not saying here that they could enjoy real and personal communion with Christ just as they had enjoyed in some measure in his earthly life and ministry. There is no comfort in this text. No, instead, beloved, what you have here is that promise that you may know him, not only about him, and more than that, that you may be with him and not only under his ordinances. That's the promise of this text. That's the promise. That's what's held out to us, beloved. As you read through the New Testament, you'll notice that that kind of spatial language of being with Christ is employed even after Christ's ascension. What do I mean? Remember what Christ says to Peter in John 21. He says, Jesus saith unto him, if, if I will that John, that he, that is John, tarry till I come, what is that to thee? And then, and then Christ says this to Peter, follow thou me. Now, beloved, for three years that had a very literal and concrete fulfillment. They became his shadow. They ate where he ate. They slept where he slept. They were wherever he was. They followed him. But beloved, do you notice that when Christ is ascending, he tells Peter, you may still follow me. That's a command, but also a promise. That there is no reason for one to doubt that you could not be with Jesus so as not to follow him. 
Again, it's the same idea that you have in Revelation 22. And the Spirit and the Bride, they say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Again, it's spatial language. It is coming. It's not thinking. It's not just have a religious idea or experience. But there is a real and a personal command to be with Him. Beloved, which means then you can be with Him. You need to ask yourself, beloved, you and I both, when you come across these texts of Scripture, do I believe that this is hyperbole? Do I believe that this is exaggeration? Do I believe even, no, is this deception? Or is it actually possible for me to walk with the living Christ now? Really and personally. Beloved, I would say in this category, we, especially in the Reformed community, have limited this in ways our forebears didn't. John Welch, one of our Scottish Reformers, used to say he wondered how a Christian could lie in bed all night and not rise to pray. And many times he himself rose and many times he watched. And this John Welch also had many immediate answers to prayer. Robert Bruce, another reformer, put it this way. He says, when I was young, I was diligent and lived by faith on the Son of God. But now I am old and am not able to do so as much. Yet he condescends to feed me with lumps of sense. The, the sense there is that, that Christ was there sensibly tendering to him. Sensibly and personally abiding with him. We've limited this. Beloved, we have limited this in ways we ought not. You can know Christ, not only about him. But we close here with just three words of application. There's something that underlies this text and everything that we've set up to this point that I think we could easily overlook. Christ attended at least three times, according to John's Gospel, at least three times Christ attended John's preaching. And only on the third time did he have any, any, who laid hold of him. If you think about that, beloved, that has, that has to break your heart. Because that congregation was a blessed congregation. The greatest of prophets, says Christ, was there preaching. And the incarnate Son of God was in the congregation, and no one Wanted him. But two. He went to the congregation where Christ would be exalted. He was there. He was present among the people who sat under that sound. And day after day he went home without a follower. That should, beloved, that should break our hearts. How is it that somebody in the first century could, could have Christ in their midst and the preaching of Christ so powerfully set before them and still Christ go home alone? How wicked and how vile was that congregation? If we were in the first century, we wouldn't do that. Except, beloved, that Christ says that's the exact same experience that he has so often. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Beloved, how many, how many houses of worship throughout this land will have Christ present? The faithful proclamation of his words sound forth, and Christ will go home without a single follower. And so it really raises for us the question individually. Could we fall under the same rebuke ourselves? Or are we like the two? The two that went. That's our question for examination. The second question, though, for us, the second application for us is one of incredible comfort. Beloved, see what you have in this text as a picture in substance of what every believer may enjoy and does enjoy to some degree, that they can walk with the living Christ in this life. Not just think about him, but really know him and walk with him. Beloved, that that wonderful reply of Christ's come and see, is in some sense tendered to every believer that goes to Christ and pleads for more. And that should thrill your soul. Because, beloved, the same Christ who was so tender with these disciples, though they had rejected him, like the rest of those congregants, for days. Nevertheless, Christ comes to them tenderly invites them to intimate communion with himself. And beloved, that's when that text, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, comes to us with such great sweetness. And finally, friend, there is a word of exhortation here. If you are malcontent with only a form or a portrait of Christ, and you want him himself This text asks, what are you willing to do to find him? Are you tired, friend, of just thoughts about Christ? And would you move to himself? Well, what are you willing to do, beloved? It's a question that asks you and it asks me, what are you willing to give up? What mountains of division are you willing to remove? On top of that, what are you willing to to do that you've left undone. You see, beloved, this this text calls us to go after him. Even if we go alone. This text calls us, really, as Christ himself commands us, to come after him, denying every other master, that we might abide with him. Are we prepared to do so? Beloved, if we are, then I would submit to you we've read the Gospels correctly. Because the Gospels themselves, as we found, draw us to Christ himself. Not to a historical figure only, but to a living Christ who even calls to you this morning to come and see. Amen.